2: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Lenski. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Always nice to see you both. Here we
0: are in the heart of winter. It's cold out
2: there. It is cold out there. It's also uh, <laughs> best of the year time. Aaron and I are, are deep in the long form best of the year. Uh, I'm deep uh, in procrastinating, sending in my best of the year ballot <laughs> and just remember to do it. It's that time of year. Only a few shows left. Who's on the show this week? This week on the show is Wright Thompson. Uh, I don't even know what his title is. He writes for ESPN. He has written for ESPN for a long time. He has written pieces that I know you both are very familiar with. Uh, He wrote an incredibly uh, iconic piece about Michael Jordan on the eve of Jordan's 50th birthday. Uh, He wrote a piece a couple years ago that was on our best of the year list, in fact, about uh, Tiger Woods and Tiger Woods' relationship with his father. Um, He writes these big, big pieces takeouts for ESPN um, and has covered all kinds of different athletes. He has a penchant, as we talked about in the interview, for writing about um, athletes past their prime or after retiring, sort of when they're out of the limelight. We talked about that a great deal. He also uh, just wrote a book, just came out. Uh, It's called Pappy Land. A Story of Family, Fine Bourbon, and the Things That Last. It's a book all about uh, Pappy Van Winkle. You guys know that whiskey. And it's a story about Pappy Van Winkle and the family behind it and uh, the guy Julian Van Winkle who's sort of um, uh, spearheading it now. And it's also about whiskey in general. And I think it was supposed to be just about that, like just about Pappy Van Winkle and bourbon and nostalgia and stuff. But then the book kind of morphed and right is very, very present in the book. It's also a book about him and about his father and his family. It's very, very personal, which I think was not the plan. So we talked about that book. And then we also talked about one more thing, uh, which is this podcast called Bloodlines that he just did, which was an investigation into the death of uh, many horses all Uh, last year at the Santa Anita Racetrack in California. And uh I helped produce that podcast. He did it with ESPN, but also it was produced by Pineapple Street Studios, which is where I work. And uh so we talked about uh that a fair amount too working together and uh the producers who actually did all the work on that show who are Jess Hackle and Courtney Harrell. And Courtney, you guys remember, has edited this show. So anyway, a lot of stuff in this interview. Uh I asked him a lot of personal questions. I have, not, uh, I have not listened to that podcast, uh, but I intend to. Uh, I very much enjoy just writing, so I'm excited about this one. Um, you know, as we start putting together our end-of-the-year lists that are currently overdue, and I am reminded uh, at how many great newsletters I subscribe to this year and how many of them are hosted by MailChimp. That's my top 10 of the year newsletters. Maybe you will start one in 2021. Do it with MailChimp. They support all kinds of good stuff like this show, and uh, we thank them for it. And now here's Max with Wright Thompson. Hey, Wright Thompson, welcome to the podcast. What a pleasure, sir.
3: Man, it's so good to hear your voice. I feel like I heard it every day there for a while, and uh, I've, I've been missing my fix of Mac, so this is, <laughs> this is good. It's good to be here.
2: Well, it's somewhat ridiculous, I think, that we have not yet done this. I found an email this morning from very early 2013 of me asking you to come on the show.
3: Wow, that's so did, did I not respond?
2: No, you said you would do it. But then I kept following up, and then it never happened. And then there's another thread where I asked you again, and that time you were like, I'm not sure I can do it. And here we are, seven years later, we have actually worked together. We talked every day for a long time, still never did the podcast, but now we're doing it.
3: I'm very excited about it. I, uh, uh, For people who don't know, uh, you and I and your incredible team there, namely Courtney and Jess. Uh, did an ESPN Investigates podcast that came out earlier this year. So I was an honorary Pineapple Street Media employee. I, I claim my alum status. Like I want the card in the mail and the hat and the sticker for the car <laughs> and all of that shit.
2: Well, this is uh, this is a different environment, right? Now I'm going to get to ask you the real questions, the difficult questions. I hope you're prepared. I'm ready, man. All right. Well, let's start with this book. Can you give me the brief synopsis? How How
3: would you describe this thing? I would describe it as a strange genre-bending book that combines sort of narrative nonfiction and the story of Julian Van Winkle and his family who make Pappy Van Winkle, the world's most sought-after bourbon, with a meditation on home, family, and inheritance that is sort of the story of the four years I spent driving back and forth to Kentucky to talk to Julian about bourbon. And I mean, if the book has an origin story is that it was going to just be a book about bourbon. And then I, I kept finding that the conversations I was having with him about life and our families and home and myth, I found that those were the most personally rewarding conversations to me. And it was just really bothering me, this idea that the most interesting version of this four years would not be the one on the page that I would write a book and that I would have a personal experience that was more profound. And so I started trying to figure out how to combine them. Although uh, once when I tried to describe my grand literary theory of all of this to my wife, she was like, oh, it sounds like eat, pray, love for dads. So uh, (laughs) there's a chance I'm entirely full of shit.
2: Well, I don't think eat, pray, love is entirely full of shit. It is a little bit eat, pray, love for dads, but that doesn't have to be a pejorative.
3: I don't know. I just, you know, I got fedoras and rock and roll t-shirts, Max. I'm trying to be dangerous. <laughs> I, I understand. Like, this is it's not good. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah.
2: So at some point, the fedora turns in on itself. You know what I mean? Uh,
3: the, the mask eats the face, Max.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, that was one of the questions I had about the book. So you sold it as a book about bourbon, right? Yes. That was the plan.
3: Yes. And then I have a long history of not really telling editors what I'm going to do for better or for worse. And so at some point I just decided that I wasn't going to do the thing that I sold and that as opposed to asking permission, I was just going to write a bunch of it and send it to him. And so I wrote a third of the book like it is now and just sent it to Scott at Penguin and was like, God, I hope he likes this.
2: (laughs) That's so interesting because one of the questions I had reading it was how did Wright tell – his editor, and also how did Wright tell Julian Van Winkle that this book was going to be in part and not in a small part about him. And, and it sounds like at least with your editor,
3: you didn't tell this. I didn't tell Julian either. I didn't, dude, I just did it. And sort of thought I would ask for forgiveness instead of permission.
2: The question I had was, how did you have that conversation? And And so I'm thrown a little bit by the answer being, I didn't
3: have that conversation. How did you learn how to do that? When did that start? I mean, I've always a little bit felt like, I mean, the reason the elevator pitch is a thing is because it's real and it's hard to do and I'm really bad at it. You know, when people ask me for help writing headlines, I'm often like, well, if I could say it in nine words, I wouldn't needed 12,000 that included me, you know, like so. I've always struggled to articulate. It was always easier for me just to do something than try to figure out how to tell someone about it. And so, I don't know, just a long time ago, I decided that I was just going to trust myself. And it doesn't always work, but uh, I just, that's what I was going to do. When does it not work? I mean, I've had stories that, you know, my old editor, Paul Kicks, and I, sometimes I'd write a story and he'd be like, there are just too many ideas. This is a book proposal you've written, not a magazine story. So, you know, we should have talked more on the front end about having these 11 big things colliding, (laughs) but uh, I mean, so that's when it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like when, when I've just bitten off more than I can chew and don't want to admit it for the podcast we were doing, I was desperate for us to go to China and Mongolia and do a fourth episode that was half robot horses and half the only wild horses in the world. And Courtney and Jess were like, it's no, you're an idiot. And with this. Dude, I tr- I This book was really late, and I mean, like to the point that like one of the main motivators for continuing to do it was I'd already spent the money. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I needed to do the book, and I just hated everything I was writing.
2: Were you desperate to write something that you yourself would find worthwhile? Or were you desperate to get it done? Because it feels to me like you could write a book about whiskey Am I kind sick? of in your sleep.
3: No, I wasn't desperate to get it done. I mean, that sort of thing about having spent the money is, I mean, somewhat of a joke. I mean, I was desperate for it to not be bad. And I was desperate for it to not be expected. I just hated the idea of someone picking this book up and just being, oh, I know exactly what this is and then being right. Like that was, I didn't want that. And I also had a profound experience reporting it, like personally, and I wanted at least some of that to exist in the story or else I felt like, look, if you spend four years having all of these really profound, important conversations and thoughts about your life and someone else's life, and you can't translate that into a story, then on some level, like, what are you even fucking doing here? You know? And so that's what I was desperate about was the fact that, like, there was a version of this story that I experienced that I was struggling to put on paper. And if you can experience something and can't put it on paper, you're not really that much of a writer.
2: Well, maybe that's true. Although I think a lot of people wouldn't feel the, like, leeway, confidence, privilege chutzpah, I, I don't know what it is, to, like, just write a different book than the one that they had promised, especially when the one that you had promised, I think, was easier.
3: Oh, it was a lot easier, yeah.
2: I still am just interested in the switch, you know? I guess what you're you're trying to explain it to me, but maybe I'm just trying to press a little bit harder. Like, it felt to you like you had to make that switch from a book about whiskey to a book about these profound experiences that you had had. And I I guess my assumption is that not anyone would do that. Not everyone would do that. And so I'm interested in why you did.
3: You know, I think that, I mean, one, this book could have so easily just been merch, you know? So I was hyper conscious of that, you know, this idea that like, if I'm going to sort of like golfers are like, if I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss away from water. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss weird on this. You know, if if it doesn't work, it's because it's too weird, not because it's too safe. Uh, I also, the things that I was thinking about felt really personal and intimate to me and important to me. And, like, not me as a writer, but just, like, you know, as a human being on planet Earth. And... It mattered to me that it say something about the human condition. You know, Jay Lovinger, who was, you know, mentor, editor, friend, life coach, was always like, every story either needs to be about the human condition or it's just bullshit. And like, I wanted this to clear that very basic bar that, you know, it can't just be a story of a guy who makes whiskey. It needs to be a story about his family and my family. I mean, it needs to be about all of the things that sort of are symbolically evoked by the idea of bourbon and especially nostalgia, which is so closely related to bourbon. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you described sort of where do you get the confidence to do that, it's interesting, like, where do you get the confidence to write a book that is shot through with, with as Bruce Springsteen would say, shot through with doubt? You know, I mean, it, it's interesting how those two things are opposite sides of the same coin, whatever you want to say. But, I mean, it, you know, it's, it felt like someone tried to look at themselves honestly and to really try to sort out what matters and what doesn't.
2: All right. I got a lot of questions because I, I do want to talk to you about what you just said about feeling like that voice was one of doubt, because I think of of your writing as one of its defining characteristics being like certainty. So I want to I want to ask about that, too. But there's something else you just said that I, re- <laughs> I really want to dig into for a second, which is that every every piece has to be about the human condition. Can every piece be about the human condition? Like, are they all weighty enough to carry that idea? Like, is part of your job to find the connection every time? Because here's why I'm asking. I feel like that is like a quality of your writing is that you can feel you looking for that big human truth every time. And I wonder whether it feels to you after having done this for as long as you have, whether every story has
3: it or not. I would say that one, every story does have it. A lot of times, though, it's funny, it's silly, it's nihilism. It's, you know, they, I think as you get better at it, you could play a lot of different songs. Whimsy is a human condition. And that I love the shit scene from Van Wilder. And laughing at that is the human condition. You know, it doesn't all have to be like dark and Russian, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so fucking serious. And like, you know, one, I feel like I'm always looking for that. Two, I think it always exists because st- all stories are about people. And there is something about the lives of the people of everyone you write about that is universal, I think a better word for it than sort of the human condition is uh, like every story I think should and does, if you can find it, have that level of interiority. Mm -hmm. Like they all have characters who are thinking things they don't say, who are feeling things they don't understand, who are doing things for reasons that they can't possibly fathom. Every human being has these layers. And so I think it's the job of the story to put all of them out there not try to say, this is truth. I mean, like, you know, everybody has the story they tell about themselves and there's the story other people tell about them. And we know that neither of those things are ever true. That the, the truth is when those two things are in conversation with each other. And so I think that can happen in every story.
1: laughing because like who would have thought watch running sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how team milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course
2: Okay, so it can be found in every story. Do you find it every time?
3: No, and I, there are things that are technically really good ideas that I just sort of bounce because I just can't get it. I can't find a way in that feels, you know, there has to be something I'm curious about. I mean, it was interesting when they were talking about, ESPN wanted me to do a podcast, and it was very important to me that it be something that I had never done before. Because I just the idea of going out on the road and re-asking questions I'd already asked for a year of my life sounded like the worst torture I could possibly imagine for myself. Because it would have taken everything I hate about the job and kept it, and taken everything I love about the job and gotten rid of it, which is the sense of wonder and discovery and exploration. And maybe this answers your question better, like... I always have questions at the beginning, but I don't ever want to set out to prove a thesis, not just because I think you end up with bad journalism or flawed stories, but because it's just as fucking boring. You know, (laughs) I, I like the discovery. Well, but you also know what you think. Yeah, but I'm wrong a lot. As you know, Courtney and Jess can attest to, you know, like I like the pushback. I like the I mean, that's why, by the way, I mean, if you don't have a great, strong editor, you're screwed. But, I mean, that's a separate conversation.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're going to stay in your psychology here for a second because... God, I'm trying to change the subject and you
3: won't let me.
2: Un- under no circumstances, man. Uh, that's, that's why <laughs> you, you... I just read Pappyland and I went back and read a bunch of sort of like classic write pieces. I read Tiger, Jordan read the piece about your dad and the masters. And there's a thing that runs through them, which is there are big declarative sentences in all of these pieces that are essentially like, this is the way that we are, one version of that or another. Yeah. And there's incredible certainty in those lines. You know, there's real like, this is how it is. And I wonder how that matches up with what you were just saying about the things that you love about the job being the discovery. Because it reads at the end of these pieces like you've got it all figured out.
3: That's an interesting question. The benefit of being able to do that kind of reporting about someone and be that granular is that you arrive at places where there are things you just know. What I think makes Pappy Land different than that is that I put myself through some of that same ringer and there are simple, powerful declarative sentences about the human condition in that book as well that are like some of those things you're talking about. There are also long runs of stumbling around in the dark looking for that declarative sentence and not arriving at it and ultimately understanding that the writing of that passage of the sort of walking through the hall in the dark is its own kind of declarative sentence about the human condition that the search and the uncertainty serves some of the same function. You know, and by the way, I mean like the line in that tiger story that I keep thinking about, it's actually a quote from the first director of the tiger woods foundation is mirror mirror on the wall. We turn out like daddy after all, you know, and like, I like, those things because, yes, we are complicated animals on a rock, but we're also just animals on a rock. And it's pretty funny how like people just make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And just because I can see Tiger Woods doing them in his life doesn't mean that I'm in any way deputized to notice them in my life or stop myself from doing them too. I mean, it's pretty funny. I mean, like the knowledge knowledge is not the armor we want it to be.
2: What is the interaction between realizing, you know, the dynamics that Tiger Woods has with his dad and your own life? Like, how does that get internalized for you?
3: It's an essential part of writing the story for sure. And then, I mean, the follow up to that is what happens when the story is done. But I mean, the first half of that is... If you're going to write a profile of someone, I feel like even if you don't end up writing this, I mean, at the beginning, you have to find some piece of common ground with them so that no matter how famous or good or noble or bad or like, no matter how cartoonish their most well-known attributes are, it, it shrinks them. And once they're small enough to fit in your hand, I think it changes the entire experience of asking questions about their lives. And so I always want, even if it never finds its way into print, I want to read and think and interview around the person enough so that there's something about them that I really understand or relate to. Because by the way, what I will do is I will ask a whole bunch of questions about that thing informed by my own experience of how I feel about it in my life with the hope that I've guessed right so that the insight into the person buried in those questions is often startling to them. And then we can move on to other stuff. But I've earned my oxygen in the room. Now I can ask whatever I want about anything. But I I do like to... I've had people look at me like I have three heads, but there are a lot of people... And they're always different, you know, I'm thinking about you know, whether it's Michael Jordan or Pat Riley or Theo Epstein or you know any of these guys, like if there's something that I feel like they're dealing with, that I've dealt with or that they're struggling with, that I've struggled with, asking really specific internal questions about that. One teaches me that human beings, whether you're an anonymous writer or a very famous former basketball player, experience life in very similar ways. And two, like I said, it just the clear consideration of their life on display in a question like that, I think buys you real answers to all the stuff about them that you don't have any experience with or things that you can't really understand.
2: Are you saying when you're bringing your own experiences to those questions, when you're finding something in their lives that you can relate to personally, do you do that? when you're actually asking the questions, is that text or is it subtext? Are you putting yourself in those questions? It's subtext.
3: It, it's, it's all subtext. I, I would never say, well, I feel. I would just say, what well, seems to me that going through X would probably make you feel like Y. Is that right? And mm-hmm. if the answer is no, then you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, what is it? How am I wrong? Sometimes it's like, well, yeah. I mean, there's a question like that about Michael Jordan dying young that was totally fueled by that.
2: Right. And that was the thing. I mean, that's in the first two or three paragraphs of that piece. Yeah. And it's a thing that he'd never said out loud before. No. That he always assumed he would die young.
3: Yeah. And, uh, trying to think how I asked that. And I don't remember why I thought he might've thought that. I think I asked it in the context of Mickey Mal. I was like, you know, Mickey Mantle always thought he would die young. And Jordan was like, me too, or something. And then we were off.
2: Wait, but forgive me. Did you think you were going to die young?
3: Uh, uh, Dude, I've always worried about that. I mean, my father and grandfather died at 58. That means I got 14 years left.
2: Yeah, it's in your work, man. What, What do you mean? Well, you write about people in that age group all the time. I had never really understood it until I read Pappyland. But there's so many stories about people in their 40s and 50s who have done the thing that they will be known for and are trying to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. There are a lot of people that you have written about like that.
3: You know, swear to God, swear to God, I have not ever thought about all of them like that. But I mean, I'm going through the list. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's fucked up. <laughs> that's a pretty good thing you just noticed. That's some John Jeremiah Sullivan shit right there. <laughs> what? Well, uh, can we go? Can we go back to talking about the shit scene at Van Wilder?
2: No, no, definitely not. <laughs>
3: great that's
2: great no i mean that 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 was i've always been interested in why you were so intrigued by people after they were out of the limelight and it is i mean that that's a a full-on beat of yours i think but it wasn't until i read pappy land that i realized that you know both your grandfather and your dad had died young and right around the age that a lot of those people are and it did feel connected to me
3: uh so uh I'm not as interested in greatness as I am in what do you do with it. Because, I mean, greatness is simple. It's just be selfish and driven. I mean, it's not really that complicated at all. It's what happens when there are things you would rather do than expend the energy required to stay there. I mean, that's what's interesting to me is when you have really talented people making choices about what kind of life they want. You know, like I find that really, really interesting. Why? Because it's a choice. It is a choice that someone is making between two different parts of themselves, both of whom are authentic and well-intentioned, but like who want different things out of life. And so I always think it's easy. A 26 year old who is a star athlete is And I don't mean this in a pejorative way because, by the way, this is true for a 26-year-old writer or a 26-year-old lawyer or stockbroker. That's the most simple organism in the planet. ESPN is always trying to be like, go write stories about the young, hot athlete. And I'm sort of always like, those stories are all the same. We've all lived that. And so, you know, that is a very simple existence. I'm very interested, for instance, in Clayton Kershaw understanding what it takes to continue to be Clayton Kershaw and trying to structure his life in such a way that he can still spend that energy without robbing the rest of his life. And like I think those are interesting because I think those are human beings making hard decisions with an enormous stack of chips in front of them. I mean, does Tom Brady look happy to you right now? He doesn't look happy to me. No. What's he doing? Like, what's he doing? And the answer is that he needs to call Michael Jordan or he needs to call Dale Murphy and be like, at, at what point does continuing to be this one version of myself close the door on this other version of myself that I could be?
2: In Papuland, you wrote about this thing that I noticed when we were working together and didn't have the courage to ask you about, but was interested in which was that you were working all the fucking time and traveling as a huge part of that. Like you were probably in five different countries and 30 different States in the couple of months that we were working on that show. And I always was wondering just like, how does it, how do you balance that? Like, how do you do this? How does your family feel about how much you're traveling? And that's in, Pappy land a lot is the tension between your work and your life and responsibility. So the, the arc of the book for people who are listening is just like over the course of the time that you're reporting the book, you're also sort of you and your wife, Sonia are expecting your first child and you're trying to come to terms with what that's going to mean. And, and it's just interesting to hear you talk about that. Like greatness is, what did you say? It's like, um, it's like selfishness and drive basically.
3: Some very simple declarative sentence.
2: Some simple declarative sense. Yeah, you summed it all up, I believe, uh, yeah, declaratively. Yeah. Well, but but I mean, I wonder just when you're talking about that, is like, what are you going to do once you've achieved that? Like, you've achieved that, right? You you must be well past what your ambitions or dreams were when you were starting out at the University of Missouri, wanting to write for magazines. You know, there's like a section in Papyland where you go for an interview at ESPN, the magazine and the editors forget about you. And you sit in the waiting room for two hours, like professionally must be past where you ever thought you would get to. So is that also like you're trying to figure some stuff out for yourself? Is is that also connected?
3: I mean, a certain amount has to be that you're just on autopilot. Like, as you said, I've been on the road 180, 200 days a year for 20 years. And so there was a certain ability to compartmentalize just because of the movement. Do you know what I mean? Like I just was mm-hmm, moving mm-hmm. constantly. And it was just like, like, if you just keep moving, nothing can catch you. So to answer your question, yes, all of this is way beyond what I ever could have imagined. And I think that, you know, I'm certainly asking myself questions about like, well, what do I do? What's next? You know, I did a story earlier this year about another Michael Jordan story and I loved that story. I loved doing that story. Uh, I mean, I liked how it turned out as well, but I really loved doing it. I loved the reporting of it. I loved the figuring out the arc of it. And so I do feel like I love writing these magazine stories. I feel stripped of sort of the desperation of youth. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, this sounds, I kind of sound like such an asshole. I mean, I don't feel like there's anything to prove. I just like doing it. And so I don't have some sort of burning need that frankly, for a long time I did. And I don't know whether that makes me a diminished version of that person or if this is better. Like, I really don't know. Uh, I would never let someone come write a profile of me. And in hindsight, I cannot fucking believe I agreed to do this with you because you actually really know me. And that is, you don't ever let someone (laughs) really know you. Like this was a fucking insane thing for me to do in hindsight.
2: Well, listen, man, I guess the thing that maybe I was trying to ask was if that particular burning desire goes away, right? And the thing that we're talking about, which probably we should fill people in on is like, you grew up, in a pretty small town in Mississippi, you decided you wanted to be a writer. You ended up going to Missouri, wanted to be doing the exact kind of work that you ended up doing. And there are many, many, many young people who want to do this kind of work and there are not a lot of slots. And you got one. And you got one while the slots were falling away too. So I think part of the thing I, I was asking about is like, It does take selfishness and drive and a burning desire to get one of those slots. And then when you get one, maybe you feel like you got to hold on to it pretty tightly. But if you don't feel that anymore, I guess the, the thing I was thinking while you were talking was like, do you need to go find another burning one? You know what I mean?
3: I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean... Or
2: does one person have to do that? Like, I'm asking a human condition question here, not necessarily a right Thompson question. You know what I mean? It's like, do you need to have that or do you hit a point in your life in which
3: you're sort of post-burning desires, you know? I don't know the answer to that. I think that, one, I think it's different person to person. I mean, the people I admire most don't try to recreate the sort of fire of youth. The people I admire most are able to put down their drive for like external gratification and acknowledgement, but don't ever lose the sort of creative engine that keeps you and your work being reborn and reinvigorated and continuing to challenge yourself to challenge your own sort of preconceived, Ideas about the world and the kind of stories you want to write and the things you want to learn about the world. I mean, because in some way, these stories are just like, just go out and learn things about people and places. So, like, I don't ever want that to go away. I don't want to not have a creative life. I don't need to be sort of, you know, there's a time for standing on top of the mountain and there's a time for walking down the other side. Now, figuring out when those are is the million dollar question. But. (laughs) You know, by the way, that's the question all these athletes that I'm writing about are asking themselves is when do you get pushed off the mountain or when do you walk?
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that is the like running theme between those things. And it's like, when do you get pushed off the mountain? When do you walk? And what does it look like when you're no longer on it? And I think that last one is one that you're interested in, too. You know, there's a lot in those pieces that's about what does it look like when the lights are off? You know, how does that feel when you've been the center of the world's attention for some significant period of time because of greatness essentially. And then you're the same person, but the lights are off.
3: The most interesting thing about sports to me is that the lights go on and off. I mean, literally like in the building, there's someone with a switch Like, I just – they're not even trying to have fucking metaphors. There's a switch in the building that cuts (laughs) the lights on and off. Uh, I remember when Joe Paterno died, I went and did a story, you know, because they turned the lights on for a week on the stadium at Penn State. And so uh, there was a guy who worked for the maintenance department whose job it was to turn the lights off at the end of the week. And so I was like, can I go with you? And he was like, yeah. So we got on a golf cart. So we actually, like – you can't just it's not one switch to turn the lights on and off in like a football stadium it's like six switches but we got in the golf cart and went around and the sound that big stadium lights make when they're being cut off cuz by the way the thing i love about going to sporting events and i i love the press box i love all of that stuff is i like the buildings after they're over when they're empty i like walking out of a cubs world series game and the only sound are the rolling beer kegs. Like, I love that in a concourse because they're going to do it again tomorrow. And But the lights, the sound that stadium lights make when they cut off, I mean, that has to live an athlete. Like, I, I've never actually asked an athlete if they've heard that, which I need to do the next interview I have with someone. Because it's a... I mean, you can hear it. I mean, you can hear the power down. And it's something like it makes it, the hair stand over my arm right now. You can't see it, but I love that. I really love that.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's like, um, totally infectious about you is like, you love, a, you love a lot of things. I uh, you know, you and I haven't known each other all that long or anything, but I've been in a lot of places in which you have been like, you need to try this. I love it. Whether it's like food or, horse racing or the lights powering down in a stadium. But can I talk to you quickly about your, uh, your personal mountain, like uh, the Wright Thompson mountain? Sure. My understanding is you had some jobs early on at newspapers. Yep. And then landed at ESPN pretty early in your career. Yeah. And have been part of this mountain. This like, media institution that grew and grew and grew that made money hand over fist from cable subscriptions that took a small but meaningful portion of that and put it into the kind of work that you do. And, and you got to do incredible stuff, go all over the world, cover what you wanted, write the stories you want to write. And that place, I mean, ESPN as an institution is in such a different place right now than it's ever been since you've been there. My sense is that for most of the time you've been there, it was Ascendant and it is not that way now. There's just a huge round of layoffs. And I I wonder how for you, this incredible job you've both like had and gotten to have, you know, like how you're feeling about how ESPN is changing and, and, and how that interacts with these questions about like burning desire and your spot on the mountain,
3: you know? I mean, when you said got to have, I mean, that is, first of all, 100% true because, I mean, my God, I, I joke all the time, jobs are harder to get than they are to do. And I've had, you know, I have the best one in the world. And I have to love something. Like, the thing you said earlier was interesting because, like, I, like, that's very important to me is the the joy, the energy of a room. I constantly reflect the energy of the people around me and so have learned that about myself. And I'm like, I want to be around people who fucking love life and who love what they're doing. And so, you know, the things you're talking about at ESPN, my big worry that hasn't really been realized, frankly, I mean, like I don't want to sound like I don't understand that they're real problems. And you know that, you know, I had a bunch of friends laid off yesterday, but like in my corner of the sandbox and in the world where, you know, I talk to Eric Neal every day, that feeling still exists. I understand that in every workplace, especially media right now, it's fragile. And so if that was gone, like the ability to have a portion of the sandbox where we talk about ideas and about making things and, I'm going to get off the phone with you in here in just a minute and talk to Eric. We got like three or four things cooking that I'm really excited about. If that ever goes away, if that energy ever goes away, then it would be hard for me to imagine continuing. But right now I want to be part of the solution. You know, I mean, I've, I've been, as you rightfully said, been the beneficiary of a tremendous amount of freedom. And if you know, if right now I, if there are things I can do to sort of help everybody, I'm totally on board with that. There, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening, still despite the headlines. And if it wasn't, I mean, I wouldn't be here. But it is, and I'm excited about doing it. You know, I mean, we're—I got an Archie Manning profile coming out on December 11th that I'm as proud of as any of these. Although that, you know, now that you pointed out the. It's pretty I, funny. I was just
2: looking up his... He's 71.
3: Yeah, and by the way, this is the story about... Uh, the story evolved as I reported and wrote it, but the thing I went to him with is, this is the 50th anniversary of your senior year, which means that... Uh, and he became famous when he was a junior. And so I, I'm like, you've now had a 50-year relationship with this person, the avatar of Archie Manning. And I would like to know about... arc of your relationship with this other person who follows you and Olivia everywhere you go. Like (laughs) when did you learn how to use him? When did you understand him? When did you resent him? When like, I want to know about you and Olivia's relationship with your very close, strange friend, the famous Archie Manning. And that was the jumping off point. And so like that is as ambitious as anything I've ever done. And so I guess to answer your question, yeah, man, there's some really rough seas, but I mean, I feel insulated. I don't know if that's naive or I don't know if like ESPN's going to call me when this airs and be like, what are you talking about? But like, I do feel that way.
2: I, 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 on the ESPN front though, I think I even meant more about the industry in general in that, like, I wonder whether it feels to you like the ground underneath you is shifting in some way, whether like, oh yeah there was this path of the sports writer that seemed like it would be very, very hard to actually get on. But that if you did, it was like an an infinite road. And whether that is, that's a terrible metaphor. But you know what I'm saying? Like, no. And, and, does it feel like these sort of like magazines folding and the work that you do is, do you feel like the ground is shifting underneath you?
3: In my experience and my understanding of what the path was for me is sort of useless. I mean, I talked to, I used to feel like I had a lot to say to a class of college students, you know? And now I don't really know how to tell them how to become the thing they want to become other than like the things we all say, read and work hard and all that. But I mean, I don't, all right, I got asked in some interview a couple of months ago and I went on my usual jihad about Twitter. And uh, somebody reached out to me uh, who uh, is a young you know, 20 something, I think, journalist who's like on the make, you know, one of those people who, you know, coming after my job or jobs like mine. And it was just like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, it's easy for you to not be on social media. You one grew up in a world where you didn't need to be. And two, now you're well known enough to not need it. But you know, you're just showing your age and privilege. And they were right. Like I've stopped doing that. After that conversation, because I just was like, oh shit, that's totally correct. And so I do feel like I have a very clear understanding of how to, it feels like I have a map to a city that doesn't exist. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm
1: -hmm. That
3: like, I know exactly how to get someplace that is disappearing. And I don't think that the kind of stories that I love and that you love are going to stop being created. I think that people have done work like this for a very long time. I think navigating the world to stand on top of the mountain, to use your phrase earlier, is it is a different path now, and I don't really know what that is. I uh, certainly feel an industry shifting beneath my feet.
2: But does it freak you out?
3: No. No. Nothing ever stays the same. It shouldn't. I mean, I you know, I loved making that podcast with you because – it was the first time in the lo- in a long time that i just was far and away the weakest link and the dumbest person in the room i like to learn oh how to do it i love making my tv show because i'm having to learn how to do it so no i it doesn't freak me out because you know I'm not just trying to do the same thing over and over again
2: all right so speaking of things that you like um don't know and things that you know i feel like i have asked you all of these existential questions and it would be doing a great disservice to the young writers who listen to the show to not ask you some very practical questions thank thank god about how you do your work sorry man you should have known this was coming though
3: i, I know i did know it i wish you could see my face because i look quite pained <laughs> uh all right let's fucking have it
2: um Well, I think that one of the things that would be helpful for people to know, because it was really interesting to me, was I've always wondered reading your stuff, how you got people to talk to you, how you got people to agree to do these profiles. And then there was one of these times where we were working on the podcast and you showed me an email that you'd written to Clayton Kershaw. And Clayton Kershaw is a pitcher for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, widely considered the best pitcher of his generation. But he had, at the point you were writing it, had failed many times in the playoffs and the Dodgers had not won the world series. And he caught a lot of shit for that. And you showed me this email that you had written, I guess to him about what you wanted to do. And I'm interested generally in how you approach those pitches and how you think you get people to talk to you. And I don't know if you'd be willing to do this, but I wonder if you'd be willing to like read some of that Clayton Kershaw email.
3: Well, when you brought it up, I found it. Uh, this was sent Thursday, October 10th, 2019, which is the day after he had uh, blown up in the playoffs again. So I, I wrote his agent and just, you don't want to be milk toast. You don't want to just sound like every other request coming along. You want to indicate that you have thought about them or if you're sending to an agent, their client, in a real empathetic way, but like with point of view. And you want to try to get their attention and make them wonder if this might be someone who would, everyone just wants to be seen. And so if anything, the email is just trying to indicate to someone that, hey, I want to look, I'm empathetic, I want to look, and you're going to strike out more than you're successful. Uh, But anyway, here it is. This is Wright Thompson from ESPN. So I'm writing today with the knowledge that this is way too soon but I've spent my career writing about athletes who have strived greatly, who are warriors and who face down demons and supernaturally talented opponents live and in color on the largest possible stage. And I've seen how success and failure on that stage are two sides of the same coin and that a life of happiness after the game ends requires making peace with everything good and bad that happened on the field and that the good and the bad are equally dangerous. I'm sure that for instance, Derek Jeter has real work to be done to figure out what the next 40 years look like, Michael Jordan has done really great work in that department figuring out how to be happy. I just finished Jane Levy's book about Babe Ruth and was stunned at how lost he was once he was no longer Babe Ruth. Clayton clearly will have some work to do. He is perhaps the best pitcher of his generation, one of the best ever, and yet he must know that the results of several high-profile games will follow him around until he decides it won't. That's the other thing I've realized from all these stories. His postseason results only have power over him if he gives them power. Most people don't ever realize that, I think. It's part of why Dale Murphy is the happiest former ballplayer I've ever met, content with his choices, because he so intentionally worked to kill the avatar of himself. All of this brings me to my point. And then I asked for access. Which I got. It,
2: It feels to me like in that email is a lot of what you're talking about in terms of trying to reflect back to people things that y- you can relate to and understand from their lives in those interviews. Like the tone of that note feels really connected to how you're saying you approach the interviewing people.
3: Well, it, it also is, you know, every bit of knowledge and insight is a building block, you know? I mean, like you want each of these to, you know, the pitch to reflect things learned or questions wondered, based on other stories, you know, I mean, it's interesting that that email references things that we've referenced here, you know, I mean, I think that there's a real danger in, you know, the whole business of journalism is designed to get the truth, and like, I think that's very dangerous, I mean, I think that like, you know, my Tiger Woods story is a story about 10 years in Tiger Woods's life, there are things it is, and there are things that it isn't, a story about Clayton Kershaw dealing with this doesn't contain the all of the multitudes of Clayton Kershaw. It's just, I'm, I want to ask him a question. And I don't even really need the story to get to an answer. It just needs to show him grappling with the question. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that like stories that are shot full of uncertainty can have those simple declarative sentences you were talking about earlier without seeming out of place because the whole thing is set in the idea that like we're all just figuring this shit out. And, you know, two steps forward, one step back. I mean, whatever the thing you want to say is. And, like, so, like, there's some things that are certain and universal, and I feel like it's okay to say those things as long as, you know, you're making sure that the the world you were creating in each story individually and in all the stories together is one that reflects the uncertainty and doubt and contradiction of the actual world.
2: I'm sure there's there's a range of them but do you have a sense of how these incredibly high profile people react to this work that you do like react to these profiles of them
3: Yeah I mean I've gotten a range uh Pat Riley was oh well, he's a pro and he's a grown up and he was like You took me all the way to the bone, but you didn't hurt anyone else, and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Jordan's initial reaction was, how did he find all of that stuff out? And they were like, Michael, you told him. And he was like, oh. (laughs) Uh, You know, I had someone whose wife took the story to marriage counseling and put it on the table and told the therapist, see, I told you. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting. I mean, I I feel like even the ones that are like – I don't like the word critical because that I feel like the ones that where people are naked on display are still done with empathy, you know, and, uh, I'm not trying to sit in judgment of anyone. I don't like that sort of school of journalism. I like them all to be letters from, Mm -hmm. which means a life and a time and a place. And, you know, they are true in that moment. And that's not saying people don't grow or change And I try to be very honest about the fact that, you know, I'm writing you a letter from inside Michael Jordan's life on the eve of his 50th birthday. I'm writing you a letter from, or whatever. Like, I I like the idea that these things are designed to be dispatches from a time and a place and a person. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause I'm not, this isn't always true about someone. This is who they, this is what they're dealing with and how they're feeling now. You know, it could have been a totally different story if I would have showed up three weeks later. Do you know, I happened to arrive in Michael Jordan's office the day after he stopped being a resident of Chicago. That was luck. Think about how different that story is if I'd gotten there three days before or two weeks after. I mean, I'm always like, what are you doing today? What are you most worried about today? Did you sleep? How'd you sleep last night? Oh, what was keeping you up? Like, I want to know, like, what's going on right now?
2: Do you think that people regret talking to you?
3: I certainly regret talking to you, so maybe. (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like, I think everybody just knows the deal at a certain level, you know?
2: Yeah. All right, one last question, then I'll let you go. I feel like we've been talking a lot about uh, you know certainty, what you know, what you don't know what you learn and I wonder if um, in the process of writing this book which was supposed to be a book about whiskey and it ended up being about yourself and fatherhood and nostalgia and also uh, whiskey a little bit um, whether you learned something certain about yourself in the process of writing this book
3: No I mean well, I learned that it's very easy to know the kind of person you want to be. It's very hard to be it. (laughs) You know, I've been laughing about, uh, I had this moment the other day where I was like, cause I have a three week old baby at home right now. And so I thought for a minute about trying to add up how many hours she's been alive and how many of those hours I have not been around her because I was being interviewed about a book about how important it is to be present for your family. (laughs) So, like, there's an entire chance we're all full of shit.
2: Uh, There is truly never a time that I have felt more compelled to end an interview than after that. Yeah, because,
3: like, by the way, what you don't know is that, like, he's got his kid in there watching TV while he's talking to me about a book about family. I know. (laughs) Like, fuck, it's real. The struggle's real, man.
2: That's a, that's a letter from me right now.
3: <laughs> oh, I mean, but isn't that the truth? I mean, honestly, isn't that the truth?
2: Hey, right, man, thank you for doing this. I hope it wasn't too uh, too painful.
3: No, it was good. Goodbye, Max. <laughs>
2: thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends at MailChimp for sponsoring the show, for making it possible for us to make this show, and thanks very much to Wright Thompson for putting up with me. We'll see you next week.